where shall wisdom be found? That's a question that we read in the book of Job, chapter 28, a question that Job himself asked. This man who has, at that point, lost everything, his family, his property, his wealth, his health, and there he is, disoriented, confused, trying to make sense of his life and to know what he should do next. And this question that he asked, where shall wisdom be found? How do I make sense of the life that I find myself in? This is a question that we continue to ask today. Because like Job, we may not be suffering that much, but we too live in confusing and disorienting times. So much of us have found the normal rhythms of our life overturned and disrupted. And we're having to ask questions and make decisions on a daily basis. Decisions that we're having to make as individuals and in groups. Decisions about where and when and how to gather with people. About what to do in our workplaces and how to navigate difficult friendships or go through hard conversations with people who disagree with us. Decisions for those of us who are our parents about what to do about school and education, how to help our children during this very confusing time. And all of these decisions that we're having to make, they're raising pretty basic questions for us. Questions about what is it that we really want out of life? What is the good life? What do we owe to our neighbors? What are the sorts of things that we're obliged to do? What what does it look like to live well during this time and during any time? And how do we decide what to do next? All of these decisions that we have to make come under the rubric of what the Bible calls wisdom. And that's what we're going to be studying for the next 12 weeks together is wisdom. What does it mean to be wise? Where shall wisdom be found, as Job asks? And the way that we're going to do that in this course that we're calling Ancient Wisdom for Modern Life is by looking at three books of the Old Testament. Three books that, honestly, many of us probably rarely read. And on the face of it, don't seem to have too much in common with one another, but that all share a single theme. They all focus on wisdom. These three books are called Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. For the next 12 weeks, we're going to look at each one of them and turn and see what they have to teach us about wisdom and how they can equip us to live well today. And today we're going to start with the first book, Proverbs, and this book that's really just a collection of a bunch of sayings, wise sayings. And tonight, I'd like us to begin our study of Proverbs by focusing especially on the first chapter and the opening prologue, and by asking three basic questions. First, what is wisdom? We're using this word, or I've been using this word again and again, but what does it actually mean? What does it mean to be wise? What's included in wisdom? The second question is, where does wisdom come from? That's what Job asks, isn't it? Where shall wisdom be found? Where can we look to find wisdom? 
And the third question we're going to ask is, why communicate wisdom through Proverbs? Why choose this particular form of communication, these why sayings? After all, if wisdom is simply knowing what to do and knowing the principles of life, why not just spell that out more clearly? Why have it as a list of wise sayings? I think asking those three questions tells us some very fundamental thing about wisdom itself. I want to begin with the question, what is wisdom? I wonder what comes into your mind when I talk about wisdom or about being wise. Maybe it's a particular person. Maybe it's a parent or a grandparent or a mentor of some kind who has helped you as you've navigated life's decisions or someone that you think just lives life well and you admire them for that. Or maybe it's an expert in a field of some kind. Maybe you think of uh, your financial counselor or advisor, someone who knows investments that can help you as you're making decisions. Maybe you think of, of doctors who know medical science and know the body and can diagnose problems. I can give you a couple of examples that I think of when I think of wisdom. And I think it, these examples help us recognize how diverse wisdom really can be. And the first example I like to point out are two brothers, Tom and Ray Maliazzi, otherwise known as Click and Clack, the Tappet brothers. And for decades, Tom and Ray have had a radio show that was called Car Talk. And when I was a kid, I grew up listening to this with my dad, and I love this show. Uh, just Tom and Ray talking to each other about almost anything with their strong Boston accents and their constant humor and laughing at one another, telling stories about each other, in and of itself makes for a great show. But what's really impressive about Tom and Ray is the fact that no matter who calls in with a question, people call in and they have some story of something that's gone wrong with their car or a suspicious sound that it's making. Tom and Ray have this encyclopedic knowledge and seem to be almost immediately able to diagnose what the problem is simply by being told about a sound that's happening. No matter the make and the model and the year of the car, they can immediately identify it and suggest what mechanical solution might help. And the reason is because as down home, as down earth as they seem to be and as, and as fun loving and salt of the earth as they feel, but Tom and Ray are both MIT grads with incredible extensive engineering and mechanical knowledge. And they draw on that to solve particular problems. So that's one kind of wisdom. Another example I think of is Michael Jordan. There's this ongoing debate these days about who is the greatest basketball player of all time, the greatest of all time, the GOAT. And some people say it's LeBron James, but of course, as someone who grew up loving the Chicago Bulls and watching Michael Jordan, I would argue that there is no question that it's Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time. And what made Michael Jordan an incredible basketball player wasn't just his inhuman athleticism or his competitive drive. What made him a great basketball player was that he understood the game, that he could sense where people were on the court, 
that he knew the strengths and the weaknesses of both his teammates and his opponents, that he knew what to do and how to do it and when to do it, that he could read others' movements and know how to counteract them. Michael Jordan was both the greatest defensive and greatest offensive player in his day. And it was because he was not only incredibly athletically gifted, he had what people call a high basketball IQ. He knew the game. He was a very wise player. And because of that, he was incredibly skilled. But wisdom, when we think of it, is not just encyclopedic knowledge that helps us solve problems or just skill and knowledge that helps us make good judgments in split-second decisions like Jordan had. Wisdom also includes what the psychologist Daniel Goleman calls emotional intelligence. Goleman says that often we obsess over IQ when we're rating someone's intelligence and how successful they might be, how good are they are taking tests and at solving problems. But Goleman argues that what really sets apart people who are very successful in life isn't simply what they know, it's how able are they to read other people's emotions? How, how familiar are they with their own emotional state? How gifted are they at knowing how to respond to particular social situations and, and how to read other people? And that's what he calls not IQ, but EQ, emotional intelligence. And here's how Goldman describes an emotionally intelligent person. The emotionally intelligent person, Goldman says, is able, for example, to rein in emotional impulse, to read another person's inmost feeling, to handle relationships smoothly. As Aristotle put it, this person has the rare skill to be angry with the right person to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way. So wisdom, then, is not a simple thing. Wisdom includes a number of different aspects of the way that we think and of the skills that we have for life. And Proverbs also understands wisdom as a complex, multifaceted thing. William Brown, who's a scholar of Old Testament wisdom literature and has written a lot about Proverbs, he points out that the prologue of Proverbs, these first seven verses, which describe the purpose of the book, this prologue uses a lot of different words when it talks about wisdom. And these words help us to understand just how complex and just how varied Proverbs understands this skill of wisdom to be. So some words, for instance, like knowledge and learning and understanding. This, Brown says, help us to see that wisdom is a type of intellectual virtue. Wisdom means thinking well. And to think well, we have to understand things. To think well, we need to know relevant facts. We need to learn what's important. We need to understand the world in front of us. But wisdom isn't just about thinking well. Wisdom is also about acting well and about being able to make right judgments when needed, just like Michael Jordan was able to make 
right judgments and split-second decisions about what to do in a game. And Brown points out that some of the words that the prologue uses in Proverbs, words like prudence and discretion, these aren't just intellectual virtue. This is wisdom as a kind of instrumental virtue. It means that wisdom is a, is a tool, it's a skill that helps us to accomplish something well. Prudence and discretion are the qualities that someone has who's able to understand a task in front of them or who's able to, to, to do something very well, like a shipbuilder who knows exactly how to design a ship. Or for me, I like to think about fishing because uh, I grew up fishing all the time. And wisdom isn't just having a lot of relevant knowledge about fish and about what underwater structure might look like and the behavioral patterns of certain different types of breed of fish. But fishing well means knowing what lure to use, in what situation, what kind of cast to make, and being able to execute it well. So Proverbs understands wisdom as both intellectual virtue and instrumental virtue. But Proverbs also, Brown points out in this prologue, understands wisdom to be not just thinking well, not just having a skill to do something. It also understands wisdom to be living well in the sense of living justly. Wisdom is about not just intellectual virtue, but moral virtue. Because the wise person is someone who is described as acting in righteousness, justice, and equity. And these words, righteousness, justice, and equity, especially the first two, righteousness and justice, these are often paired together in the Bible, especially if you read the Psalms and the prophets. You'll frequently hear God described as a God who acts with justice and righteousness. And this is a description of God as one who sees those who are in need in particular, one who is able to make good and just judgments, one who provides for those who are vulnerable, one who gives people what is due to them. So the wise person is someone who thinks well, someone who has the skill to accomplish what's before them, and someone who acts with justice. Karl Barth, who is one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, he once preached a sermon about wisdom. And I really love the description that he gives of wisdom there. And I think it, that his short little description encompasses all of these different aspects and helps us to understand what the purpose of wisdom is. Here's how Barth describes wisdom. Wisdom is the knowledge of life, or as we might say, the art of living. This is the greatest knowledge, as well as the most difficult art, to be able to live, not to let one's life drift into ill-fated disorder, but to give it substance and direction. He who is able to live rightly is a wise man. So that's what it means to be wise. To be wise is to be able to live well. Wisdom is, as Bart says, the art of living rightly. And that's what we're aiming to do as we study Proverbs. So that's what wisdom is. That's our first question. Now I want to think about 
the question, where does wisdom come from? Or as Job so memorably put it, where shall wisdom be found? Again, Proverbs gives us a helpful understanding of where wisdom comes from. And it looks for wisdom in various ways. And we see this throughout the book of Proverbs. First, Proverbs looks for wisdom by observing patterns in creation. Wisdom comes from an observation of creation. A lot of people who study biblical wisdom have pointed out just how important creation is to the Bible's understanding of wisdom and how wisdom is, as one person put it, and I thought this was great, wisdom is living with the grain of the universe. Just like a woodworker has to work with the grain of the wood and not against it. The wise person understands the order of creation, the purposes that are in created things. The wise person is able to see patterns in creation and to live with the grain of the universe, with the grain of creation and not against it. You see some examples of this if you read individual Proverbs. Take, for instance, one that I had to learn as a child. Proverbs 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Here, this proverb, likely written by Solomon the king himself, looks at the ant as an example of hard work and planning. The ant teaches us the wisdom of planning in advance, of working diligently, of planning for the future in our work. Or, for instance, a similar proverb in chapter 10, verse 4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Once again, this teaches a similar lesson as the lesson of the ant. If you're someone who works hard, then you will likely find prosperity. And those who refuse to work often find destitution. That's a pretty simple lesson, but it's important to note that Solomon is finding this wisdom by simply observing creation, observing the world, noting patterns and things. Or take the instance of this one, not from Solomon, but one of my favorite Proverbs in chapter 27. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, will be counted as cursing. We all know the wisdom of this proverb, don't we? And it's not a difficult one to figure out for yourself. The first time that you greet someone loudly and excitedly after having a cup of coffee and they're still trying to wake up and they feel very sleepy, you'll immediately recognize that what this ancient proverb says is still very true. Don't be loud to someone who's still trying to sleep. And that's the wisdom that we gain from simply observing creation, observing the patterns of things in the world. But that's not the only source of wisdom for Proverbs. Another source of wisdom is that of tradition, what is handed down from one generation to another. Many of the Proverbs that we find in the book of Proverbs are written from the perspective of a father who's handing down instruction to a son. And often we are told that sons need to listen to the instruction of their fathers or to listen to the sayings of the wise. Israel was not the only 
group in the ancient Near East who collected these sayings of the wise. It was pretty common. But in this book of Proverbs, what we're reading are a bunch of sayings that got handed down from one generation to the next. Just like for many of us, the first place that we learned principles of life were from our parents. And what our parents taught them, taught us, were often what their parents taught them. And so that too is a source of wisdom. It's understanding that things are handed down to us, that there is tradition that has preceded us and that we can learn how to live well by listening to those voices. But there's a final source that's really, really important for Proverbs. And it's actually the one that's stated most explicitly in the prologue. Because you see, the wisdom in Proverbs is not a secular wisdom. It's not a wisdom that just comes from observing creation, from learning things that others have observed, or simply from receiving the wisdom that's passed down from one generation to another. To truly be wise, Proverbs tells us, the source and the beginning of wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we read in Proverbs 1 verse 7. And this isn't just a theme in Proverbs. This is something we'll find again and again as we study Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. The close connection between being wise and between what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. And it's important as we think about this to recognize that this fear is not a, it's not a fear that is of a God who threatens us. It's not a a fear that is a kind of terrified stance of a God who poses danger to us and before whom we must cower in fear. No, this fear that's discussed here is more like a posture of reverence and awe. When Scripture talks about the fear of the Lord, it talks about adopting an attitude of recognizing, as the Protestant reformer said, that we live quorum Deo, that we live before God, that all of our lives are conducted as creatures who stand before their creator. And the fear of the Lord is also not just a posture of recognizing that we have a creator and standing in reverential awe of him, but this fear is also a posture of humility. The fear of the Lord is someone who understands that he or she has something to learn, that he or she is not God and has great need and needs instruction. To quote Karl Barth once again, he who does not fear the Lord betrays himself by his insistence that he needs no counsel because he is his own counsel. On the other hand, he who fears God stretches out his hands asking for discernment and understanding, for wisdom, and thereby for the art of living which he does not yet possess. He is ready to receive, to accept the gift." So that's where wisdom comes from. Wisdom comes from observing the patterns in creation. It comes from traditions that are handed down to us, from the wisdom of those who have gone before. And it comes, most importantly, from the posture that we adopt as those who fear the Lord, those who recognize that we aren't always our best counsel, 
that we still need to grow in wisdom, that we are but creatures and with outstretched hands receive the gift of this wisdom that is given to us in God's word. The final question that I want to ask tonight is why use Proverbs? Why use proverbial sayings to communicate wisdom to us? Why not just tell us the principles that we need to know and the knowledge that we need to have in order to live rightly? Proverbs are something that we don't use as often these days as people did in Israel's ancient culture when they were beloved and often recorded. But of course, we still have them with us. Life is like a box of chocolates, is what Forrest Gump learned from his mom. We have sayings, you know, sayings like, money doesn't grow on trees, don't count your chickens before they hatch. We have these proverbial sayings, and there are different reasons why we love them. One, of course, is simply that they're memorable. The wisdom that we receive in these sayings is easy to remember because they're in the short, condensed form. And this is especially true with the book of Proverbs because they often take a poetic form as well. But the benefit of these Proverbs, these sayings, isn't just that they're memorable. This actually teaches us something really fundamental about wisdom when we recognize that these proverbial sayings not only teach us truths, but truths that often contradict one another. And that's a really important point. One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from the show The Office, uh, which if you've spent any time listening to my teaching, you'll likely have heard me reference before because I love The Office. And Michael Scott, who's one of the, the lead characters there, he's the boss of this paper company. Michael Scott is someone who often likes to use different sayings. And there's one episode in season one where a woman played by Amy Adams has come into the office and she's working there for the day. And Michael is very attracted to her and he wants to find a way to ask her out. At the same time, he's trying to find a reason to tell his coworker Dwight that Dwight should not ask her out. And so as Michael's thinking about this, he says at one point, I live by one rule. No office romances, very messy, very messy, inappropriate, no way. But I live by another rule, just do it, Nike. Now, of course, these two rules completely contradict one another, but they give Michael a way to both tell Dwight that he shouldn't ask out this woman and to follow Nike's wisdom himself and after all, just do it. We see this same kind of pattern of apparent contradiction in the book of Proverbs itself. In chapter 26, we read a proverb in verse 4. It says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But then as we continue reading in the very next verse, we hear something that seems to contradict that completely. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So which is it, we might want to ask? Answer not a fool according to his folly, or answer a fool according to his folly? The contradiction here is so stark that some Jewish rabbis actually thought that the book of Proverbs should not be included in the canon of Scripture at all. 
because these two verses were in direct opposition with one another. And as the rabbis reasoned, God himself does not contradict himself. God never speaks in opposition to himself. And therefore, it can't possibly be true that the Proverbs that we read here are the word of God. But that actually comes from a misunderstanding of what Proverbs are. Because you see, Proverbs are not universal rules that can be applied the same in every situation. Proverbs are a kind of truism. They tell us something true about the world. They help us to live rightly, but they also require something of us. They require of us that we recognize the specific context that we find ourselves in. This is captured well, I think, by a scholar who has studied the book of Proverbs, and he talks about this apparent pattern of contradiction. And here's what he says. It is precisely the ability of Proverbs to contradict one another that lends them their versatility and power. A proverb, even when couched in a universal form, is not a universal absolute like the law of gravity or the speed of light. Proverbs are diverse and contradictory because human life is contradictory and diverse. That diverse, contradictory nature of Proverbs teaches us something really basic and important about what wisdom is and what it requires of us. So often, we would like for the complexity of our lives to be solved for us. We want God to simply tell us a direct answer to every question that we might have. We struggle with ambiguity and uncertainty. We want everything clear and resolved and simple. And so sometimes we go to the Bible and we try to find answers to every question we might have. What's a rule that we can follow? What Proverbs teaches us though is that true wisdom comes not only from listening to God's word, but by taking responsibility upon ourselves to apply it in the right way. God has given us minds not only to understand what he has to say, but to recognize the differences and contradictory nature sometimes of the situations we find ourselves in. So wisdom then involves not just thinking about the world around us, understanding truth. Wisdom also involves this difficult task of thinking toward what it is that we must do in front of us. One philosopher who has helped me understand this aspect of wisdom a lot is a moral philosopher by the name of Oliver O'Donovan. And he talks about Christian thinking with these two terms, reflection and deliberation. A reflection, he says, is thinking about something, is understanding truth, understanding truth about God, about ourselves, about the world, about the patterns in creation, about the purpose of our lives, about what it is that we should be aiming for, what are the goods that we should value, what are the dangers we need to avoid. That's reflection. But then, O'Donovan says, we also have to engage in this task of deliberation. That's not thinking about something. It's thinking towards something, thinking towards ask action, asking ourselves the question, not simply what is true, but what therefore should we do in this particular time and this particular context? 
And that is what wisdom is meant to help us and equip us to do. This task of deliberation, of not only thinking about life, but as Bart said, of embracing and succeeding in this art of living well and living rightly. 